Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. And this is going to be a jam-packed Friday follow-up episode for episode number 510, where we revisited the medical evidence in the murders of Stevie, Christopher, and Michael. I say this is going to be jam-packed, and to be honest, Mike, as I look into it, we're not going to get to all of this today. No, probably not. There's just way too much we've got to cover. Yeah, so we've had a ton of people uh, making a lot of really good points, asking a lot of really good questions about other doctors and the different opinions. And so we've started really digging deep and going into appeals testimony by Dr. Spitz and other doctors. And to be honest, it's it's time to record. We pushed it back as far as we could, but we're just not there yet. So uh, we're going to we're gonna cover everything that we can to answer as many of your questions as possible today in this week's Friday follow-up. And then in next week's Friday follow-up, we'll address this again along with uh, the follow-up on this coming week's episode. All right, let's get after this and get through as much as we can this week. All right, sounds good. Real quick, Bob, can you remind everybody about CrimeCon? Oh, yeah. So just as a reminder, uh, for everybody, it's been a couple of weeks since we mentioned it. CrimeCon this year is going to be in Nashville, Tennessee. It's going to be over the weekend of May 5th, which is Saturday. I think it's Thursday through Sunday. Uh, it's an awesome event. We'll be there along with all of your other favorite true crime podcasts, uh, authors, TV stars, anything related to true crime. There's a ton of great presentations. It's a great time, and it's a chance to actually like meet and hang out in person with the people that you are interested in in true crime. So if you're thinking about going, please do. We would love to see you there and and meet you in Nashville this coming May. And if you want to sign up now, you can actually get a 10% off of your admission. Uh, if you go to CrimeCon's website and you use our code JUSTICE, they're going to give you 10% off of your admission into CrimeCon. So we hope lots and lots of you do it. We'd love to meet and hang out and maybe have a beer with lots of you guys. Okay, well, let's get into these questions. Marianne has two questions for us. It seems to me that in your turtle experiments, they did quite a lot of damage on the test animals. If turtles were left alone to feed on the victims for 18 hours, would they not have made more damage on the victims' bodies? What are your thoughts on this? Well, the thing is, we didn't have, obviously, a human cadaver to, to run these tests on. Uh, and, and maybe the way I described the experiment with the, with the pig wasn't quite... The way I painted that picture wasn't exactly accurate as to what, what we had there. So let's start with the chickens. The thing with the chickens is chickens, is, it's a very soft meat and a very soft skin, uh, and there's not a lot there. And so the, the turtles, like I said, in a very short period of time, were able to completely devour the chickens down to just literally nothing left but bone, as opposed to a pig, which, uh, you know, we used a pig because, you know, we were told that, you know, the closest thing to human flesh is a pig. Uh, and, and specifically, you know, if they're testing like gunshots through a, a human body or anything like that, scientists or people doing experiments will often use a pig. Uh, and it's also been said that pig skin is the most similar to human skin. But in our experience, with, and I don't know if it's because the pig, because the pig was slaughtered and, and butchered. So that means it was it was gutted and emptied out a few days at least before we got the pig. So it was in cold storage after that. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But you remember like this, we, once we got it, we were shocked because the skin felt more like leather. Yeah, it was real tough. Yeah, it was nothing like our skin. And we, we were actually like pinching our skin and kind of looking at the pig. And it's like, man, that's, that's it's really tough. And, and, and in fact, you know, they, football, they called a pig skin because they used to make right. footballs out of pig skin. Of course, you know, human skin is much thinner than that. So maybe it's different when they're in life because I actually talked to some other people that have worked on the case for the defense team who have done similar experiments with pigs uh, in, in the water. But they did it 
Uh, they actually had the butcher come to the scene and to try to mimic the crime scene situation as closely as possible. They actually butchered the pig right then and there and then put it into the water immediately as the boys would have been. Uh, so, you know, fresh wound, not gutted. You have all the gases and everything coming out of the pig. Uh, and of course, we didn't do that. So they had, you know, different results than we did. Uh, but as far as the damage of the pig, you know, and a lot of it, we went back and kind of were looking at, we, we don't have before and after photos. We were videoing everything. So we have like, Hours and hours and hours of video footage to go through, and and it gets even trickier than that because most of it is on GoPros. And for any of you that run GoPros, you know, we had to every two hours or so go back in and swap the cameras out so we could recharge. You know, so we you know put them in in shifts. Yeah, that was a pain in the neck. Yeah, for you standing there watching me and Shane getting into the water. Hey, I had a case of the chiggers, man. Relax. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. You had chiggers and poison ivy and refused to go in the bayou again. It was a terrible experience. Right. <laughs> not to mention the fall. Yeah, let's not go there. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but so the way GoPros record, so we'll have, they, they'd each be good for about two hours. So we'd take the, the GoPros back to the hotel and we'd have two of them with two SD cards with two hours of footage, but they only record in like eight to 10 minute segments. So you don't have a two-hour video clip to watch. You have, you know, 10 eight-minute clips uh, that you got to go through and put together and all that. So anyway, um, we started kind of going back through there. We're starting, I'm working on making a YouTube video showing some of that. But And I, and I put a couple of pictures up on the fan page uh, for people to kind of look at the experiment. And I was showing, you know, look where a lot of the damage was to the pig. And you see, like, in the, in the crotch area, it looks terrible. But that area was already, the skin was already removed from that area. Right. And so what we're getting at is they, they were going after fleshy areas they were soft. Um, so the, the more with the pig, the experience, like we didn't even really get clear bite marks that we had hoped to. But also, that being said, also, we never saw snapping turtles. I think, I think we had video of one single snapper, and it was a small one. Um, we had tons, probably hundreds of turtles that were feeding on it, but they were mostly painter turtles, red-eared sliders, what I would call a leatherback, which I found out during a discussion on the fan page. It's not actually what they're called. A leatherback is apparently this giant, very scary-looking sea tortoise. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, but yeah. you know the the soft-shelled ones that kind of were kind of spotted with the pointy noses, right? Yeah, that you know we call leatherbacks here, or some kind of a soft-shell um, turtle. But the majority were were painter turtles and red-ear sliders feeding on them. So you know we didn't have the great big alligator snappers, you know, taking big chunks out. But you know, on the skin, you'd see like whitened areas where they would make uh, where they would bite. But it wasn't like breaking the skin in a lot of places, right? And most of their like what you see and you'll see in the videos is they, but they weren't going for that very much. They were going for the eye sockets, the snout, for the lips, uh, the crotch area, and then of course with the pig already being gutted, that changed things a little bit too because they were kind of crawling up in that cavity where they could because they had flesh they could get to without uh, having to go through any skin. Uh, and then several turtles would swim up, and because that that tail was hanging out there. And they'd go right for that tail, but they very quickly realized when they took a chomp at it that that wasn't soft tissue, that was a bone, and then they would leave it alone. So it had more to do with where they were feeding and how they were feeding with the pig. Um, we didn't really get good bite marks, you know, we, we, we didn't have, you know, so when I said the damage was similar to those of Stevie Branch, you know, that was, for me, watching the videos, and I think I put part of this up on the, the fan page, watching the turtles come up and, and just chewing on the eye socket of the just multiple going after the ears in the eye socket of the pig it it was very reminiscent of the injuries that you see on Stevie branches in that exact same place uh and there was some damage there but there's also some skin removed there prior to which I when I was going back and looking at some of the old footage from when we were put it deploying the pig I don't know why they had cut some of the skin off from around the eye but there was already some some skin missing there 
and I guess <laughs> kind of forgot where she was starting with that whole question. But but to get into the, with the experiment again with the pig, uh, it was it was more to see if the turtles would come to a body in the water, how long it would take, and then how they would feed in what areas they were going for. And it's typical of what you would see of any you know um, animal predating on any other dead animal. Uh, which is in going for soft tissue areas. You know, they're going for the eyeballs. They're going for the groin, the crotch, the lips, anywhere where they can get, in the turtle's case, get their beaks onto something. You know, so if you look at the big, you know, like like someone's back, it's a big flat space. It's not an area where you would, you know, you're going to try to chomp into and pull something out of. You're going to find somewhere where you can really dig their their teeth or their beaks into. Yeah, and her second point was, do you think that the perpetrator knew about the turtles and intended that they would devour the victims and thus make sure the boys never were discovered? I don't know. I mean, early on, I really thought that because it seemed like, in hindsight for us, it seems uh, brilliant, really. Yeah. You know, and, and we did see, remember, we went back two weeks later after we did the experiment and you know, we had left the, you know, we'd untied it and everything, but left the pig carcass in there and went back and there's just like a rib cage and a skull left. Yeah. It was completely decimated. Mm-hmm. They, they just, they chewed through everything on it. But you know, I, I guess the, the short answer is there's no way to possibly know that. Uh, my opinion, probably not. The more and more I look into the case, I think that the clothes being removed probably had more to do with body concealment. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we, I'm sure, do you have questions in there we're going to get to about the blowflies at some point? Yeah. Okay, and we'll talk about that then. But I, I think there may have been a couple of different attempts to conceal the body. Possibly, that's my, my opinion, but we'll get into that later. Magnus says, if the wounds on the boys had been caused by animals, are we saying that the boys got hit in the head and dumped in the river while still alive? That's going to be a battle of the experts, which we're going to get into, I'm sure, more in this and definitely even more next week. You know, because you have you have different opinions on that. You know, Dr. Warner Spitz stands firm as I'm reading through his 156 page testimony at the Rules 37 hearing that all three boys drown and actually says that he doesn't believe there was blunt force trauma, uh, uh, perimortem or before death trauma to the heads um, that did just straight up drown. Where then again, you have Peretti, who says all three boys died from multiple injuries and drowning, except Chris Byers, who just died from multiple injuries. And then right. again, he, he testified that uh, he bled to death. So uh, we're going to have to get into that. It just depends on which expert you believe, or if you believe you know they're right here and wrong there. There's, just, there's a whole lot of room for interpretation. And what I've found, which is kind of what we expected when we brought this up, is for the people that are already very emotionally attached to this case, people have fired, they have very strong opinions in both ways, you know, people going after Peretti, people going after Spitz, and you know, there's been a lot of allegations made to me to check into it and, and suggested reading to me, which I'm I'm working on doing right now to run some of that down. But and again, we'll get into that later, I'm sure. But really, at the end of the day, what it comes down to me is I think that I'll say this: uh, what happened in this case, as far as the different differing opinion of the experts, of the differing opinions, is not uncommon. I mean, we see it all the time. Uh, our season four case, right before this, George Powell. You know, so let's use that as an example. You have uh, Michael Knox was the expert that the state used to convict George Powell. And uh, this is based on photogrammetry, for those of you that didn't listen to that season. Uh, it was, there was video surveillance of a robber uh, that walked past the tape on the door that showed how tall the person was. And the, the witness all said that that dude's 5'8", George Powell is 6'3". But the state, to get past that, brings this expert in that says he was able to analyze the data and he came up with that the that the offender had to have been taller than six foot one, and he was convicted and sentenced to twenty eight years. 
Well, then later, and, and in this case, as it turns out, that guy was not really qualified to do that work. He didn't take any measurements in the field. There's, there's just all kinds of issues there. But that was his expert opinion. Well, then years later, they bring in Grant Fitzgerald, who actually is specifically. You mean Grant Fredericks? Yes. Yeah, right. Exactly. Grant Fredericks. I'm sorry. Grant Fredericks, who actually is a photogrammetry expert, he's he worked with the FBI, and he has done many, many cases like this where, where he's using video or photographic evidence to establish height, comes in and, and gives his opinion that says the perpetrator is probably 5'7 or 5'8. And then what always seems to happen, has happened in every case we've worked or studied, is the original expert will always, I've never seen an original expert come in and say, you know what, no shit, you're right. I screwed up. That never happens. They always come in and double down. Uh, and say, and it would say the same thing that's happened here with Michael Knox, which by the way, I think the, the last day of hearing for George uh, Powell is next week. I'm not positive on the date, check our social media. Um, but next week is the final day, I think for his post-conviction relief hearings and Michael Knox will be there. So it'll be a good one. But in that case, Michael Knox doubles down and says, nope, my estimations were, my calculations were correct and he's wrong. And so that's what you have here. You have Peretti gives his opinion. Spitz comes in later and evaluates his findings and says he's wrong, it's this. And then Peretti comes back and says, no, I was right because of this. And so it's, it's, it's typical. I don't think that anybody's doing anything, despite what a lot of people have told me on both sides. I don't think anybody's doing anything nefarious. I think it's, it's typical, and I think a lot of it has to do with pride and ego. Okay, why don't we address then right now that a few listeners have suggested that Spitz is incredible because he'd adjust his opinion to the highest bidder. What are your thoughts on that? Honestly, and, and this is going to piss a few people off. I know a couple particularly that'll be upset with this, but I think it's ridiculous. And, and, I, and I said that it's ridiculous, and then they told me to do some further research, and I've done that further research and I'm continuing to, and I still say it's ridiculous. So Werner Spitz, and I'm not, and, and understand, as I say this, I'm not saying that Dr. Werner Spitz is infallible or that he can't get things wrong, or I'm not even saying that he didn't get anything wrong in this case. But what I'm saying is, you don't gain the notoriety of Spitz and, and maintain it for decades by being what is often referred to in this business, and we've heard the term before, as either a state's whore or a defense whore. And, and that's what you call witnesses that will do exactly that. that you know, they get a reputation for that. You know, if you pay them enough, they'll say whatever you want. Spitz has been involved in very high-profile cases, and therefore they're usually, like this one, controversial cases. And therefore, there are people that have very strong viewpoints, and if he gets it wrong, then, you know, he's a crook and he's a quack. And, but Werner Spitz is highly regarded, highly respected, still to this day, and, and I'm not exaggerating, hands down, the most well-respected forensic pathologist on the planet. And like, as I said before, literally wrote the book on it. Any forensic pathologist used his book or is using his book as reference material. You'll see it on the shelf of every single forensic pathologist in the country. He's called upon to be an expert witness all the time, all around the country. I mean, he's examined thousands of bodies and reviewed thousands of autopsies. And the reason is because he does have that credibility. And what you have to, and, and by the way, full disclosure, there's a, I don't know what Borner Spitz makes, but there's a lot of money in, ex, in being an expert witness. There's a lot of money in there. And, and that's like a retirement career for him that he, he goes through and does this. Now, all it takes is one time, and, and I was asking a specific question about these autopsies, where people have said, other doctors have said in this case, he got it wrong. But have they said he got it wrong because? That's what I'm looking for as, as an investigator, as an impartial investigator. What I'm looking for, is, can someone go through and say, when he said this, he was wrong because? 
fill in the blank, more medical evidence. And so far, and, and I still have more to do, I have not found that yet. But if someone is able to do that, you know, if he gets on the stand and it's, and it's always, you know, open record stuff, he, he's in a courtroom and he gives his opinion. And when we get into this, and if you read, and I'm going to put it for the, we don't usually put documents up for the Friday follow-ups, but for this one, we will, I'm going to put up his trial testimony or his rule 37 testimony for you to read it for yourself. And what you'll see is he doesn't just say, as we heard in the press conference, you know, it was animal predation. Every single injury he goes through and says, this injury was caused and due to animal predation post-mortem because when you look here at this slide in this picture, look at the lack of hemorrhage in this tissue. You can see the yellow fatty tissue and there's no blood hemorrhage out of it. You can see the jagged cut here. So he explains why he has come to the conclusions that he's come to. Now, again, I'm not saying that that means that he's right necessarily. What I'm saying is he's put it all out there, 152 or 156 pages of testimony about this in detail, every injury. And so if he does that, and that's how he testifies, then that's why he's such a good expert witness. Well, but then if somebody can go through and then pick through that and say, see what he said here? This is wrong. See what he says here? This is a lie. He's manipulating these facts. Then his credibility is, it's not just about what you think or anybody thinks. Once that is documented, he is done as an expert witness. His credibility is destroyed because every, and, and any attorney knows, every time he gets on the stand, the defense or the prosecution, whoever the, the opposing side is, is going to get onto the stand. They're, they're going to put him on the stand and they're going to ask him, did you testify in this case? Yes. Did you give this opinion that dot, 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 dot? Yes. And this was proven wrong because of this, this, and this, this, right? So you were wrong or you lied or you were dishonest. And they're and they're done. It's or there's no way that. And I'm not just talking about Dr. Spitz, but any good because I'll, I'll put this on Peretti too. Because the people made some accusations about Peretti, and I don't think that Peretti did anything nefarious at all. I I don't believe that for a minute. I think that he did his best effort. And again, could be right, could be wrong. And I don't think that he was doing anything to try to be nefarious. Now I think that after the fact, I don't think that there's really anybody that could convince him to come on the stand and say that he got something wrong if he had. But that's also typical that we see that in, in most cases. I think the argument, and, and the thing is, it's also a typical argument. Look at every single case, especially high-profile controversial cases, the cases we've worked, where uh, especially a defense expert comes in and gives an opinion. The first thing that everyone says is, well, yeah, sure, the defense paid him for that. You know, They paid him for that, so of course they're going to give their, that opinion. Uh, and that's just, it, it's just a lazy ass argument, in my opinion. I kind of, it, it's, 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 it, find it, you know, go through the evidence, go through the opinion and show me where they're wrong. Don't come at me personally. And that's just me. Keep in mind, I'm not an expert. I'm just a regular guy like the rest of you. But for me, when I'm going through this stuff, it's like, don't come at me with that lazy ass. Oh, well, they paid him. So it must be swayed because you know, I've been, I, I, many of you know this, I've been served as an expert witness myself. I've been hired as an expert witness myself and have testified. And I don't. I know damn well you could never get me to do anything dishonest on the stand uh, or in a deposition, which most of my work is done in depositions. Because if if I had, then it would ruin my credibility, you know. And I would never risk that for any amount of money. And I don't think that Dr. Spitz or any other expert would would either. Okay. And Elizabeth writes, going with the animal predation theory. Is there any other evidence to suggest that Christopher Byers had been in the water much longer than the other two boys? I ask because the groin area injuries that present in Christopher Byers were not present in the other two children. One would think that if they're all in the water for the same amount of time, there would be similar injuries to certain tissue on all bodies. 
unless buyers may have been submerged for a longer period of time. There are people that have theories about that, and and that gets way deep into the woods, and and we'll get there at some point where we'll discuss them. Uh, But what you're talking about, as far as because of the injuries and the animal predation, we kind of covered that at the end of the episode, but in review, that's what the experiment was all about with the two chickens put 50 feet apart right uh, on either side of the pipe is is our theory was that and and, then, and it's really not even much a theory it's a known fact for anybody that's a a fisherman or a hunter uh that predators feed upstream upwind because they they feed mostly by scent especially in the water so like when you're if you're fishing for large predatory fish you know you you're going to you're going to drift your 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 lure downstream because the predators are going to be facing upstream, looking for something floating down to them. Uh, and they also go by scent to an extent, especially fish like catfish. And so that's how predators feed. So and in this case, it's, it's very obvious that that's how they would find the bodies is because the, the water was so brown, nasty, and thick that you couldn't see. You know, we mentioned way back at the beginning, you couldn't see your hand you know, probably two inches under the water. The only way they find them is by scent. And you have three bodies, and there, there's some amount of blood. A lot of it even just comes from um, drowning, causes you to, to spew out blood when your blood vessels in your, your lungs are, are being destroyed. And then there's just the smell of you know, decomposing and the off-gassing of organs and all that. But anyway, so all that goes downstream. So when, when the turtles that are, so mind you, this is a very small tributary where the boys are found, and I'm sure there would be some turtles in there, but that flows downstream into the larger bayou, which is where we were doing our tests. So any, and which is, you know, at least in 2017, was full of turtles, so many turtles, you couldn't even count them all. And so once that smell goes down and hits that bayou, any predators in the water smell it, and they're going to follow that smell back upstream. When they do that, the first body they're going to come to is Chris Byers. Uh, and so I think that's why he had uh, more of those injuries. And then again, Stevie Branch was right next to him, only five feet away. Uh, he has uh, just as bad, you know, different place. You know, he he got it worse on his face. Where Byers, of course, got the the genital um, mutilation, and then Michael Moore again is twenty seven feet further upstream. And I think that's further indicative of the fact that they're feeding upstream. You know, that when when there's two, I, I hate putting it this way, but but um, looking at it scientifically, these animals, uh, if that's indeed what happened, had two bodies of meat to feed on right next to each other, clumped together. Uh, and so they're just they're, they're, they're just not going to go past that to go another 25, 27 feet upstream to go see if there's more. You know, a few might, and there could have been uh, predators in between the two. And, and, and the big talk is always turtles, but there's more than that in there. There's, there's crawfish in there. There's fish in there. Uh, little minnows that nibble. I mean, there, there's all sorts of different critters in that water aside from turtles. And again, everybody talks about the big you know, alligator snapping turtles, which those are, do some research on those. And those apparently were present in that area. Uh, you know, they can lop off a finger and make it look like it was cut off cleanly with a uh, with a machete. You know, they, they, they have huge and just powerful jaws. Um, but, you know, the smaller turtles do the same thing, which we saw over and over again in our videos. It's just not as big and not as powerful. And they like to use their claws, too, right? Yeah, and we see that. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm trying to, in putting this video together, show you, like, some freeze frames. Because I don't think people realize that turtles have really long, very, very sharp claws. And I never really realized that. I mean, I, I suppose I'm, I've just never cared. But when we're watching those videos, you watch them feeding and watch them latch on and take these huge, long claws and just scratch and pull and scratch and pull uh, and, and help them to try to jerk the meat away with their, with their beaks. 
Uh, and we have video like freeze frame. We show the, the turtles as they start to swim away and you just see flesh dangling from their claws. Uh, and so that I think that explains a lot of the other injuries, too. But as far as why Byers, uh, Christopher had that injury and the others didn't, it, it just could have been whatever particular turtle decided to go after that, if that's what it was. Um, but, you know, they're definitely I would expect based on my own thought process and then furthermore with our experiments, uh, I would expect that whoever was the furthest downstream to have the most damage because they would be the first found by the predators. Thomas wanted to know if anybody at the crime scene or during the search for the boys mentioned animal activity like that. Well, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't know what was discussed at the crime scene. I do know that there was, and, and I wish we've gone over so much in the last couple of days uh, I had it in front of me, but there was there were letters and some reports back and forth with Gitchell and other investigators, maybe even with Peretti doing the autopsy. I'll, I'll try to get, get that up and find it and get it to you as soon as I can remember where it was. Uh, but there was discussion of animal predation. I want to say it was from Gitchell uh, in, in a letter that, you know, he said that in the beginning he said this could be damaged from, from I think he even mentioned turtles. Uh, so, so I don't know about anybody that was right there on the crime scene. Nobody said they saw turtles there. Uh, but they're definitely, I know for a fact, and I, and I wish I was, had a better, better memory to remember who said it or how, but there definitely was discussion that some of the wounds could have come from turtles. That was a theory that police were working on at some point prior to, I think maybe, because it took them a long time to get the autopsies back. That was another strange thing with these autopsies. I mean, you had, and also the fact, there's a letter that we'll probably get into more next week as we get a little better prepared for this when we have more time. Uh, but there's actually a letter, a couple letters. One letter that Gary Gitchell, the lead inspector, sent to Peretti, I think it was on like the 22nd of May, so you're talking weeks after, wanting the autopsy results. They're, they you know, basically saying, you're hindering our investigation. We don't have the, how are we supposed to figure out who did this when we don't have the autopsies yet? What's taking so long? Uh, also, in some weird anomalies, there's some issues with the signatures. And I'm trying to remember what those were off the top of my head, too. I, I studied them months ago, but it was, there's like a different, you know, they're all signed by Frank Peretti, I think, but one of them is a different handwriting or a different, there, there's some, some issues there. Um, and then there's another letter that I just recently read. Gary Gitchell wrote a letter to, I want to say, the prosecutor to Fogelman. It could have been to Peretti, but you can tell the undertone of the letter is that he's pissed off because he was still, I think it was written on the 26th of May, that he was still waiting on information about the autopsies, and he found out that the prosecutor was meeting with Peretti or had some kind of a meeting to talk about the autopsies or whatever. And, and Gitchell's basically saying, like, I wish you would have told me that because I would have loved to gone so that I could know what's going on, too. Um, so there's some some oddness with the autopsies. And, mm -hmm. and we'll get into the specifics about that, um, why it took so long. And the fact that, you know, Gitchell's in two different occasions uh, was writing letters because he was he was pissed because he wanted the results. Uh, and then there was the fact that they were meeting with uh, the prosecutor. And then, and I found, I don't know about you, but I found the, the phone conversation that we talked about in this week's episode uh, that we quoted some of the transcript from with Peretti and the defense attorney, Paul Ford, I think it was. I don't know, it wasn't Ford, but one of the defense attorneys. You, you know, Peretti said something really interesting when he said, you know, I, I'll tell you what I told them. I don't want to be put in the middle of this. Yeah, we had a listener with a question about that. So keep going. Okay. For, as soon as I saw that, I thought, what the hell? I've never. Why would the medical examiner be in the middle of this? It's upsetting, really, when you think about it. They're supposed to be a completely impartial source. They get the bodies, they do their examination, they write the report, and they send it back. And then investigators work from that. And then all of a sudden, he feels he's, they're having this discussion about, about sodomy. 
and and he's trying to you know the, the prosecutor saying this and, and he and he's blaming like remember the part where he blamed the police yeah where he's like you know this all started from them the police saying they were sodomized and i assume he means in the press conference because it was in the news that they were sodomized so i don't know if he meant saying it to someone or saying it to the press um, but he says that's where this problem comes from he's clearly upset in that conversation and he says he doesn't want to be put in the middle of it and you see the defense attorneys are trying to basically the way i got out of it is they read the reports, even talked to him, and understood there was no sodomy. So they're working on their defense, right, uh, based on what we're going to get into here in a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, they, they get word that the prosecutor's telling people that there was sodomy. And so they're calling him back saying, did we misunderstand you? Because you said there wasn't. And he said no. And again, just the fact that he says that he felt like, the fact that he felt that he was stuck in the middle between the prosecution and defense is a problem. He should never, he, what it tells me is, or what it, I should, what it sounds like to me, in my opinion, is that he felt that he was being pressured by one side or the other. And I'm not going to get into, cause I, I'm sure I'm already going to get enough darts thrown at me after this episode anyway. Yeah. Um, but somebody give me a better explanation for that. When, when, the, when a impartial third party, a medical examiner says he feels like he's being put in the middle between the prosecutor and the defense, there's no other explanation to me than he's feeling pressured one way or another. Whether he's being pressured, I can't say, but I, but in my opinion, he is feeling pressured for sure. Okay, and then we got a message from Fred Walsh on the fan page. He wanted us to make note of the fact that not only did Frank Peretti perform the autopsy on the bodies, but also Dr. William Sterner, the former chief medical examiner for Arkansas, also was involved. And he also had a couple of wounds that he put pictures up that he wanted us to compare. Yeah, so I, I think I was, I was part of some of that conversation with Fred. And, and to be honest, I, I was ignorant to a lot of this, as I said, and I started researching a lot more in the last week. So Dr. William Sterner, I didn't realize because, you know, when you, when you go through, say, the Callahan site and you're looking for, there, there's no section for William Sterner. Um, we're just looking at Peretti's autopsy. But I, I'm going to do my best to speak as intelligently as I can about this right now and promise to do better next week because I haven't gotten to Sterner stuff yet because I'm still going through um, Spitz's. Uh, but so Sterner was, yeah, I think he was the, the chief medical examiner for the state at some, I don't know if then, but at some point, but he was supervising Peretti during the autopsy because there's, so some other, and I'm sure you have it in there somewhere. One of the big issues about Peretti, you know, when we're looking at, again, we're talking about a battle of the experts, who's right, who's wrong here. I'm, I'm going to ramble here a little bit, but hopefully y'all catch up with me because I'm thinking of things as I'm going. But so one of the things that a listener pointed out, uh, Jennifer Carlson pointed out, was that I, I didn't mention in giving Peretti's credentials that he worked as a, a research fellow in Maryland for some time. There was more to his work record. It wasn't an intentional oversight. I was just reading off his trial testimony because I didn't have a CV for him like I had to, uh, for the other two doctors because she felt that I made it sound like he was like like a wet behind the ears, fresh out of medical school uh, when he went there. And he wasn't. He, he did work as, uh, uh, and I don't remember the exact title, but he's examined several bodies, many bodies in Maryland. Before he got there, he did work. He wasn't brand new out of medical school. But then the other point that people were bringing up is Dr. Frank Peretti is not board certified. So I did a little bit of looking into that. And as it turns out, they're right. So uh, now I've been told that Peretti tried to take the test for the, what is it, the American Board of Pathology uh, certification in forensic pathology. I was told that he tried to take the test three times and he failed it three times. Uh, and somebody wanted to know, well, when did he pass it? And what I found is that he never did. So Dr. Peretti was actually never board certified. So we're going to put that on the table too. And that's, and again, that's not to discredit him. I'm just trying to get everything out there. And and I'm sure that many of you are going to tell me more things that I missed. But that's something that we need to get out there too, that he was never board certified. Well, what does that mean? 
maybe nothing. I, apparently, you don't have to be you know board certified to do the job. To me, it would it would be less. I don't want to say damning, but it would be less bothersome if he just you know if it wasn't a certification you needed and he just chose not to pursue it. Uh, other than the fact that he attempted to several times and was unsuccessful in that, and that and that comes down to again when we're looking at battle of the experts, I keep saying and I'll try to stop saying because I've said it too many times, but two experts with conflicting opinions, who are you going to listen to? You know, who do you believe? As, as the old saying is, you know, when you go to me- medical school and you pass with an A or a 4.0 grade point average, what do they call you? Doctor. Right. And if you go to medical school and you pass with a D minus, what do they call you? Doctor. Exactly right. So point being, just because you might have the same credentials doesn't necessarily mean you have the same skill set. Uh, and so there's certainly some indication here that Peretti, again, it was he'd only been doing this type of work for roughly five years. He obviously was never able to pass this particular test in forensic pathology, which is a concern um, about how good he is. But so, but then we have the fact that we have William Sterner, who is is a highly respected forensic pathologist. He, like I said, I think he was the chief, and and I'm I'm, I'm barely into this research yet, but he's the chief medical examiner for the state. I think for a period of time is what Fred was saying, and and he reviewed this autopsy, and also fun fact, actually contributed to Warner Spitz's book. Uh, oh. And I, I think it was in the most recent edition that Spitz actually asked. He hadn't Spitz has enough respect for Sterner that Spitz asked him to write uh, a section in his book. I think it was it was on um, how chemicals degrade bodies or something like that, something to do with chemicals. Personally, I just watched some video of Peretti and stuff and just kind of reading his body language and reading transcripts of him talking. And to me, I think that the Dr. Frank Peretti is probably like a super nice guy, like a good a good human being. Personally, I'm, as I'm going through, starting to feel like maybe he wasn't the best pathologist in the world, at least back then. But then again, but then you have a guy who is that signed off on it. now. And, and what I'm trying to get to and we'll get to before next week is he signed off on it and it says supervised. And people have made it sound like he's literally standing there looking over the shoulder of Peretti while he's doing the autopsy. If that's true, then that's then that's that's that says a lot. I mean, he was there because you know Spitz never did an autopsy. He looked at pictures and read notes, which is common. That's how you review an autopsy. But you know that's that's not the same as physically being there and seeing these things. So if Sterner was, you know that that certainly adds some weight to to his because he went on the record about the time Spitz came in. And said, no, Peretti got it right and Spitz has it wrong. So there's a lot of weight to be had there. But what I don't know is, was he physically there literally looking over his shoulder while he was doing the autopsy, which to me seems unlikely, but who knows? And and hopefully we will know soon. Or was it, which is more typical of government jobs like that, like we've had where you do your job and then your final report, you pass on to your supervisor to review to make sure that more or less the report is correct. Uh, and then they sign off on it. So we'll look into that a little bit more. Uh, but for the record, for the, you know, in our, I said I'd stop saying it, but I'm not going to, I kind of like it now, battle of the experts. <laughs> um, uh, that, that's, a, that's a check in Peretti's corner that you have um, a, a very highly respected medical examiner, uh, forensic pathologist in, in Sterner, who has backed him up. And, and there's more in, in, in Fred specifically, because I know you brought this up and a few other listeners have too. Not intentionally leaving the names out. I just don't remember them top of my head, and we, and we had to record now. So, but there were other doctors too. These aren't the only ones that have agreed with Peretti's findings compared to Spitz. Whitney says, while researching, I read an excerpt from a book called Entomology and the Law: Flies and Forensic Indicators. 
It says, quote, if blowflies are found on submerged bodies, it indicates that at least that part of the body was previously in air. For that to be true, the boys would have had to been drowned, then brought back up to the banks, and be left there long enough for the blowflies to lay eggs, then submerged again to hide their bodies. Is this what you're supposing happened? Well, so there's a lot more to the blowflies, too. I'm going to give you a little spoiler here. We, me, you, no one is going to know the answer to this as far as what happened with the blowflies because procedure wasn't followed properly. I mean, to, in my opinion, that's that's Dr. Peretti's fault, and I'll tell you why here in a minute. So we have the coroner's report that says that there were blowfly larvae present in the eye sockets. Well, if they were, in fact, blowfly larvae, mm-hmm. which is within the, the cycle, then I maintain what I said last week or this week, which is the fact that that would indicate that the boys died, you know, between 18 and 22 hours before that, you know, getting us back to that 630, 8 o'clock time of death, which would seem cut and dry. But the problem is, were they blowfly larvae? Was it some waterborne insect larvae? Was it a different kind of larva? We don't know, because what's supposed to happen is when the bodies get to the medical examiner's office, they are supposed to collect the blowfly larvae, so that they can investigate and determine an exact species and the exact life cycle of the larva so that we can actually use it to help determine cause of death and time of death and even the location of death. But Peretti didn't do that. It's also important to note that in Peretti's autopsy reports, and I don't remember which one, but he only notes fly larva in one of the boys. Mm. It's not. It doesn't say it's not present, I don't think, in the other two. It just doesn't say anything about it. So you got a coroner that says there's blowfly larvae on all three of them, and then they go to the to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy, and he says it's only on one of them. Uh, and, and in the Rule 37 hearings, which is a, an appeal process later for the defendants, uh, they had, I don't remember the name, another doctor come in, an entomologist, testify about this, and, and, and he brought up all these issues, and he says, we don't know. And, and he named some other species, whether they could be waterborne or airborne. You know, And he does say, and people have made the point, well, you know, to the untrained eye, a certain type of insect, their eggs could be mistaken for larva to the untrained eye. Well, I, I will say that a coroner is actually a trained eye. You know, it's, it's not by happenstance that he just happened to notice that. It's one of the things that you train in that particular part of entomology. I confirmed this with a friend of mine who's an ME here in our area. Uh, they, they actually studied that. that they, they know to identify. So what he saw... Uh, and he didn't say, I don't think he said blowfly larva. He said there was fly larva. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't identify the species, but he was a trained eye. So I don't think we we're looking at eggs. I think they were larva. We, we just don't know the species. It's another thing in this case that was jumbled up and screwed up. So I guess to answer uh, the question as far as if they're taken out, putting in, in my opinion, and before I say this, I know that I'm going to get nailed for this because people are going to say that, that you're wrong. And I want to tell you that I'm not wrong because what I'm telling you, this is, is my opinion. And it is, it is certainly I'm not wrong that it is indeed my opinion if these are the circumstances. So if those were, in fact, blowfly larvae, and, and we've still been doing some, some research on how the, the life cycle happens underwater. It's, it's just inconclusive to me. But let's say they are blowfly larvae and that time scale's right. Well, to me, I already thought and was working on the premise that possibly one of the possible hypotheses that I think could have happened is that there were multiple attempts at concealment, which would mean uh, the boys were killed by drowning in the water. They were put into the water, and then as they were put in the I think that's why the clothes were taken off, and I think that's why they were bound right now. I think that they were put into the water, 
to hide them and their clothes were floating up and their arms and legs were floating up and the, the offender or offenders is trying to keep them hidden and they just can't. And so they pull them back out of the water. That's when they decide, strip the clothes off, tie their hands to their feet, try to make a smaller package and then put them back into the water uh, and then pin them down, which I have to say, I haven't seen evidence of this because the fact that the, you know, Mike Allen, when he was crawling through the water, when he came to the bodies, he pulled them straight out before they drained it. Um, I was told by someone who worked on the defense uh, as an investigator for years that they know that they were indeed pinned down with sticks, like wrapped through the rope and then pinned into the mud the same way the clothing was. But so anyway, that's I think they were put in, drowned, tried to conceal. It wasn't working. They were, you know, they were floating up arms, legs, clothes. They, they were pulled back out. The offender then strips them and ties them up, puts them back into the water. Now they stay under. And now he has all these clothes to deal with. And so that's why he takes them and wraps them around the sticks and jams them down into the mud. So that's, that's a possible hypothesis, in my opinion, of a way that maybe it could have happened if. There's, there's lots of qualifiers in there. Um, if the blowfly, but, but if that scenario was accurate and it was indeed blowflies, that would explain it. Cause they're put in, they're dead. They brought out the blowflies land in their eyes during the stripping process. And then they're put back in for concealment. Listener Kara has two questions. She says, you touched on this, but can you confirm one looking just at the head injuries? None were worse than the others. I know you said this based on the animal predation, but please confirm based on the head injuries alone. Okay, so the head injuries are another area that are up for debate. So let me tell you, in, in Werner Spitz, in his testimony at the Rule 37 hearing, uh, he, makes, he makes a lot of statements, and he backs up in, in why he made each finding. You know, agree with him or disagree with him, but he, he backs them up. He maintains staunchly that there was no blunt force trauma to the head. None. Perry Morton, before, they, before the kids died. Uh, he thinks that, you know, during the process of dying, like if they were, he, he says maybe like when they're being held under the water or they're in the water, you know, there, there's rocks and branches and things that they could have bumped their heads on causing those minor skull fractures. Uh, but he said, no, it's not. None of it is consistent with a blow to the head, which is blowing my mind because I've always, based on reading the autopsy report, imagine like a, a pretty massive hard strike to the head. You know, because it says there's they're, they're skull fractures with brain hemorrhage underneath. So my initial thought is to say, well, I think he's wrong here. Uh, but then he goes into why. And, and of course, I, I haven't seen these, these autopsy photos, but he goes into why uh, there's not blunt force trauma. And, and he seems to be making a pretty darn good case uh, in the fact he talks about how when you, you the, the photos, when they're pulling the skin away from the skull and they're looking at layers of you know, where there's hemorrhaging and what there's a, a, a substance called the galley, I don't remember, between the skin and the skull that kind of binds it together and how that tears around the autopsy process. Um, but the one that really got me is he said that he he didn't do it. Peretti did, but he has photos of it when they, when they at some point during the autopsy, they cut the skull in half and they removed the skull, the top half of the skull to examine the brain. And then when you look at the underside of the skull where those fractures were, you see that the fractures don't go all the way through to the other side. But what you see, he described specifically on Michael Moore's body is what he calls two tooth marks. And so what he's saying here is, you know, that in, this, in the skull on the outside were the injury. So if, if some kind of animal bit the skull, that on the outside you'd see the tearing of the skin and you'd see kind of a spider webbing crack in it and it, it looks like a big injury. But on the other side of it, you can see where the prominent parts of that injury were. And he's saying, and again, I can't confirm or deny because I haven't seen the photos, that there are two distinct 
teeth marks that puncture through the skull on the other side. And he also says that there's not, um, in most of, I, I, gosh, I hope, I, I hope I'm not quoting this wrong because I've been reading for three days on this. Um, but most of the, the injuries around these skull fractures actually don't show signs of actual hemorrhaging. Uh, there was one that he described as minor blunt force, and I think it was on Chris Byers towards the back of his head with some minor hemorrhaging on the brain. Um, but all of them, he said, you know, if those areas were actually fractured from blunt force prior to death, that they, the brains would just be full of blood, that they, they would bleed profusely. And, and that is not evident uh, from what he says in the autopsy. So honestly, I haven't even wrapped my brain around that yet because, I mean, the, the, he is adamant in saying, in his opinion, the boys died only from drowning. And um, I encourage all of you to read it. It's a long read when we get it up, but I see no evidence of him lying or falsifying evidence. You may disagree with his opinions, but the way he backs things up, for example, Stevie Branch's mouth was tore up pretty bad. It looked bloody, uh, cuts all over it. Uh, he says that's all from animals chewing on it. And, and the, the, he was asked um, in direct examination, well, could that be from being punched in the face? Could he have been punched in the face? And he says, no, absolutely not. I said, well, doesn't this look like someone was punched in the mouth? And he says, no, it doesn't. And he says, you know, when you look at it from, a, from far, you know, as a whole, sure, it looks like he's punched in the mouth. But as you examine the injury and you see and you look and you rinse it out and look at all these different cutting and gouging wounds around the mouth and the nose and around the nostril, there's no hemorrhagic tissue in there, meaning it wasn't bleeding. It was, it was post-mortem. Uh, and, then, and then he says, when you look deeper and he said, when you see what a punch wound looks like you have, you know, bruising on, you know, you have bruising, not just the hemorrhaging around the, the area you have. Um, if they're hitting the mouth, the, you know, chipped teeth or loose teeth behind it, bruising on the gums, uh, areas where the tooth will go through the lip during a punch like that. Uh, and he says, none of that's there. So it's, it's a more, in his opinion, when he looks more detailed at it, there's not the other contributing factors that go with a punch to the face. And then on top of that, you know, there's other wounds, same thing. So there's cuts on top, on the boy's heads all over. He says that's animal predation. And of course, Pretty says, no, that was cut with a knife. When he looks at it, he says, not only is that is the, maybe it's not a clean cut and he doesn't see hemorrhaging, um, but more importantly, he says, look deeper. Look at the bone underneath. There's no mark on the bone. If you take a knife and scrape it across somebody's head enough to cause a gash on their head, you'll have, there's only, you know, less than an eighth of an inch of skin there, you'll have a corresponding mark, scoring mark on the skull that doesn't exist there. And that's why he's saying, no, this is not, it may look at a glance to somebody who hasn't seen thousands of these, that it's a knife wound. But when you look deeper, you don't, and that's one of the reasons why he says there was no knife used, because in all these wounds, there's no stab wounds, there's, there's all these weird gouging wounds. None of them have bone damage underneath like you would have with a knife, according to Spitz. So coming all the way back to what the original question was, based on the head injuries, you know, was one more preferential than the other? When it was one hurt worse than the other? For starters, I'm, I'm not an expert. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to tell you that I can read all these reports and I can give you a new medical expert opinion because I'm just not capable of doing that. There are plenty of people on the internet that will tell you that they are capable of doing that, but most of us really aren't. Um, so one thing that I'd like to do um, actually get a third party, uh, another medical examiner at some point to go over this, someone impartial, not tell them what the case is and just have them review it and, and see what they think. Um, so we'll try to do that at some point. But 
And we're going to get into more of it next week, and we're getting right at a point where we're going to have to probably call this, Mike. I think we're almost an hour in already. Yeah, it might be a good idea. Um, so we'll see what else you got to go through there. But as far as the head injuries, I don't know. If you, if you tend to agree with Dr. Spitz's findings, they weren't hit over the head by any human. That Those were all post-mortem or in the process. He says in the process of dying and drowning when those injuries happened to their heads. And if you agree with Peretti and Sternum, they, they I guess they were kind of all similar as far as the head. They all had skull fractures. So, you know, I, I can't say that one was more preferential than the others, but it just depends, again, who you, who you believe. Okay, I think we should put a button in it for this week. We still have a lot of questions to get to, and we can get into those in the next week's follow-up. But there's one more question I want to ask you real quick, and I don't know which listener said this, but I think a lot of people are wondering, what do you make of Spitz's finding that the bite marks on the boys were caused by dogs? Okay, yeah, so anybody that's actually read his findings, uh, and I've seen people saying that the defense has had crazy theories about dog attacks and then the turtles, and as I'm reading through Spitz's testimony, so at first I thought he never really says dogs, so he uses dogs as an example throughout his testimony, so he's talking about animal predation, they'll use their claws and paws and teeth, and they'll gouge and bite and and claw and pull them towards themselves uh, when they're feeding. Uh, and, the, and he mentions dogs quite a bit over and over and over again. And then at one point he's asked, well, so the, the, did these come from a dog? And he says, well, no, I don't know. You know, other animals could have caused this too. Just dogs is what he, I guess, was, was familiar with as an example. And so he's, he's, he made clear that he's not saying that this was dogs, but, it, you know, a predator, some, you know, like a dog. And he, and he says something that has paws with claws on it and sharp teeth. Some kind of an animal like that. He's asked, could it be a cat? And he says, I don't know, maybe it could be a cat. And then he's asked, could it be turtles? And I don't think Spitz had really considered turtles because he says, well, I don't know. I don't know how turtles, you know, I'm paraphrasing. He says he doesn't really know much about how turtles feed. He's never, I guess, worked a case with turtles. Uh, And he says, if turtles make marks like this, then yes, sure, it could be turtles too. He's very, he's saying this is, this is clearly post-mortem animal activity. And he uses dogs as an example, but he says some kind of a predator. Uh, but then later, in the, during cross-examination, he actually does say uh, that, that, in his opinion, he thinks the most likely animal was a dog or a dog-like animal, like a coyote even says. Um, so, so my opinion on that, again, I'm not an expert, but I just, my opinion, I, I think that he's wrong about that. You know, what I'm seeing is, is just so telltale of what we saw with the turtles feeding and what we know about that, uh, and also keep it. Remember the, the the banks are slicked down there. You know w- whether they're slicked down, washed down. There's so many. There's theories that the water level has dropped. There's theories that the killer washed down the banks. Whatever they are, they're smooth, muddy banks, and there's no dog prints in the banks. Also, you know, and, and people said, well, a dog couldn't smell them. You know, how would they know if they're under the water? Well, cadaver dogs actually can smell dead bodies when they're underwater. Not these were cadaver dogs, but saying that there is a scent that comes out that a dog could smell and go in and, and go after it. But they would, they would drag them out, in my opinion. Um, you know, like, so if a coyote, let's say, you know, smelled that there was bodies in there and went in to feed off of them, they would drag them out of the water. Now, I don't know how well they were pinned, but there wasn't, I mean, I mean, Alan was able to pretty easily pick them up and get them out of there. You know, and, and, and regarding the pinning part of them, you know, them stuck on the ground with, with mud, remember there's a flowing current to the stream so I think it makes perfect sense that they were actually anchored down into the ground or they would have floated downstream uh, because, you know, it doesn't take long before the body starts releasing gases and it starts floating. But anyway, uh, getting back to the dogs, I don't think that it was dogs. Uh, I think that it was turtles. 
Uh, it seemed pretty clear to me from the testimony that Spitz hadn't really considered turtles. He was just looking for him. It was more about, is it post-mortem or before death? Uh, those, most of the wounds and were they made with a knife and these, you know, all of these, they're, they're jagged. You know, he gets into specifically in great detail about Byers, the emasculation of Chris Byers about how, you know, when you look, he said, he said when you, you look very closely in at the edges of all the wounds, they're jagged. They're, they're, he, he, he says, in his opinion, they are tears. They are not cut with a knife at all. Uh, and then the, 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 what is known as degloving of the penis, which would be basically he's saying some kind of an animal bit a hold of the scrotal sac and the testes and, and pulled and ripped and, and just all that skin just came off with. Um, and he also mentioned some other textbooks where they have documented injuries exactly like that. They would occur post mortem from animal predation. And in that book, it was a dog uh, that had done that to a body. So long answer and a long episode to a short question. Um, but I don't think that it was dogs. I think that the predation that occurred was was sea creatures, sea animals. I think it was turtles, crawfish, fish uh, that, that did most of the most of the damage of these bodies that was done post-mortem. Definitely, I just, I don't think it was dog. And I, and I don't, I really... When you look at the preponderance of all of his testimony, I don't think Spitz was that convinced it was dogs either. And he he actually said said as much until that one particular part in cross examination where he said that he firmly believes that it was some type of dog. But I, I would say I disagree with that. All right, and real quick, do you want to tell everybody about NBI's new project before we close out? Oh yes, uh, yeah. Very quickly, we are super excited about this. So NBI Studios, our studios, uh, is launching a new show. Next week, next Wednesday on January 31st, and the show is out of our studios. We, so you still got Mike as the producer. You still got Shane doing all the music and artwork, uh, but I really have nothing to do with it. It's, um, it's two completely new hosts. Uh, the show is, is aimed towards our female listeners. Uh, the, the host name are Stacey Carlin and Kaylee Gaines, and they, they're starting their show. They're launching their show called Hustlin' in Heels next week, and it's all about um, you know women balancing, you know, the issues, triumphs and tribulations of women balancing, you know, their their jobs, their careers along with uh, having families and you know being a mother and being a, a a wife and still having friends and free time. Um everybody from, you know, people that that work inside the home uh, to people that are out in the corporate world. That's what the show is all about. I'm really excited about it. they're both awesome, Kaylee and Stacy. We we've worked with them quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. Uh they are really awesome and actually they have a teaser that they put out for the first episode that Mike, instead of doing bloopers or outtakes this week after the closing credits, let's go ahead and we're, we're going to play. If you want to listen and see what they got going on, uh, you can listen to Hustlin' and Heels three-minute teaser uh, to get an idea what that's about. Hopefully, uh, any of you interested, we'll go check them out. You can go like them on their social media pages and subscribe to the podcast. And next Wednesday, when their very first episode drops, episode number one, we will also release that on our feed as well as theirs be in one of our shows so all of you can without having to go through too much trouble if you're interested and want to listen to it all you got to do is listen it'll already be in your your uh, inbox if you're a subscriber and then i think that is enough of me rambling for one day that went quick for me was it quick for you yeah it's always quick for me bob awesome well everybody thanks for hanging out this is um i'm kind of afraid to listen back to this i feel like i rambled a lot but there's just it's just information overload for me this week believe me please understand i'm doing my best to try to answer all of your questions, and we're just going to keep on working at it. Uh, and this Sunday, we're going to move on to kind of a new topic under the same kind of context, where we are going to make sure we have some more opinions about the case, 
Before we get into where the police went through and what we're going to be talking about this weekend is the crime scene analysis and criminal profile of the crime scene of the murders of Stevie, Christopher, and Michael, the forgotten West Memphis Three. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music of the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. And we also want to thank Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. I also want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, managing, and maintaining our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. As always, thank you to all of you. Thank you for all of your engagement. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and questions through our email, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you want to do it. Uh, You can also always use the voicemail line at 269-224-2833, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. figured out what button <laughs> presses play <laughs> all right smarter than the computer let me take a drink here before yep. we start Cheers. don't start yet mike don't start yet <laughs> i promise you'll learn to love us okay. okay let's do this all right Welcome to Hustlin' in Heels podcast. I'm Stacy, 
And I'm Kaylee. <laughs> and we are your host of this brand new podcast. We can't wait for you to join us every Wednesday as we sit down, open up a bottle of bubbly, and talk about topics that matter to women. Yes. So we're going to talk to women all across the country that are killing it, either running their own business or working for an awesome organization that make it home and have families. And maybe they cook dinner. Maybe they get takeout. They don't, definitely we, get yeah, takeout. We don't judge. Like McDonald's, I should have bought stock in. I love French fries. It's the pancakes my kids love. <laughs> <laughs> they sell pancakes all day long yes. now. Ridiculous. But yeah, we're going to be talking about not only topics that matter to women, but things that women have to do just to kill it in life and all those areas like finance and family and friends. And the fact that we do it all and we try to balance it all. And yes, you can have it all. But as we know, you have to work your ass off to get it. So we're going to talk to women who are working their ass off to balance all of those things and who are managing to hustle every day, dawn till dusk, and usually they're doing it in some really uncomfortable shoes. Beauty is pain. We do what we got to do. But we're going to talk to those women who are crushing it. We're going to have conversations here. And we don't want to just talk to those women who maybe are hustling in heels. We want to talk to women and about women in all walks of life. So maybe you're wearing tennis shoes. Maybe you're wearing slippers. We don't care. We all have those same topics that are important to us and matter to us. And so think of us as part of your tribe. We hope you join us every Wednesday. So whatever shoes you're wearing, join us on social. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast because our first episode with a very special guest will be dropping on January 31st. I don't think we have a guest on January 31st. Oh, shit. Really? <laughs> She's coming the next one, though. But she's pretty badass. So join us for our first episode. We're going to talk a little bit more to each other. We're going to tell you about our backstory. And we'll give you a little bit more information about where we're coming from. And we're going to get on the same page, too. It's going to be fantastic. And uh, that second episode. That's how excited I am about our first (laughs) guest. I can't wait for her to be here talking to us. God. I know, right? My feet hurt. Oh. Hustlin' and Heels is an NBI Studios production. Your hosts are Stacey Carlin and Kaylee Gaines, and your executive producer is Michael Bussing. All music and artwork for the show was created by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. You can follow along with Stacey and Kaylee on all forms of social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HIHpod. And you can also send the show an email to Let's Chat at HIHpod.com. Feel free to write into the ladies if you're hustling in heels, work boots, tennis shoes, socks, slippers, or barefoot. If you've got a question, comment, or to suggest a guest, or even if you'd like to be a part of the show. That's all we have for today, so make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. But until then, keep on hustling, ladies.